I often say that addiction is the result of not knowing how to find safety inside of yourself. So you find it in something else and understandably you get hooked on it because you're desperate for safety. That's all you're guilty of. Any of you looking to learn more about supporting addiction recovery through a trauma-informed and somatic lens and a nutritional lens, please join me for my addiction circle. This is a bi-monthly, entirely free, virtual circle that I invite anyone here to come and join if they want more information. Addiction tends to be so steeped in shame, and I find that doing this work in a community of people helps to destigmatize that shame so you can see how not alone you are in the experience. So whether you are personally withdrawing, preventing, experiencing relapse, or you work with people who are actively addicted or in recovery, all are welcome. The next Addiction Circle will be held on Tuesday, May 7th at 5 p.m. EDT. This meeting is not recorded for the sake of anonymity. No registration is necessary. Just join through the link below. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast, where we discuss every aspect of life through the lens of somatic psychology, nutrition, and self-inquiry. My name is Luis Mojica, and I'm a somatic educator who teaches people how to find safety inside themselves so they can better navigate this strange and sensational human experience. Your time to learn begins now. Hey, everybody. I wanted to share uh, an episode with you from a different podcast. The podcast is called The Soul and Psyche, and it's hosted by a man named Otto, who I guess we've been weaving similar circles and didn't know it. We have a lot of friends in common, and he reached out to Evan and uh, scheduled me for his podcast, and we had this really, really nice conversation. And there's, I love being interviewed. Interviewing feels like free therapy. Something always awakens in me that I didn't know was there. And when the interviewer is really dialed in and they either understand the work that I do or they're doing their own deep work, it just feels like a, a like a hug, you know, from my spirit to theirs. And this conversation with Otto felt just like that. So I wanted to share it with you because I think it's something we can all uh, appreciate on this platform as well. Uh, we had a really beautiful, fluid conversation about animism, the indigenous mind, decolonizing the psyche, my friend Amber McZeal's work, and just the transcendent nature of trauma and ambiguity. This conversation is just another in my history and future of conversations of trying to actively destigmatize trauma from a pathology and into one of a spiritual and biological experience that we have more agency in relating to and playing with and co-creating with rather than being only hurt or oppressed by. So I hope you get that from this conversation. Uh, let's dive in and have a listen. I'm curious about your relationship with art, art and healing. 
music music and healing and uh maybe this idea of the the soul kind of like opening this path to healing as opposed to just like a clinical diagnostic therapeutic you know what was your first sort of um maybe initiation into into healing and, and art if you don't mind mm. sharing a little bit about that excellent first question because that music was my initiation into healing mm. um I had had such a long, at that point, it had been 15 years of a lot of chronic pain, chronic illness, PTSD, tons of trauma. And I was so disconnected from my body, like particularly my neck to my genitals. So the whole area was just offline. And I remember sitting down at a guitar and just strumming it. And these vibrations of the guitar touching these places that I didn't even look at it in a mirror or have any association with because they were so off limits because of, you know, what I had experienced and the vibrations kind of touching me back to life and letting me feel those parts again. And what I wouldn't understand then, but I understand now is that moment opened up this, this doorway to witnessing parts of myself. So we think of internal family systems or any kind of parts work as I wrote a song, it was like a part of my unconscious was writing themselves into the paper, into the vocals, into the guitar, the piano. And after, I mean, I was obsessed with writing music. I, I still am, but it was like a, a real obsession. I, I would spend 10 hours a day in my room just constantly writing and writing and writing. And what was happening was I was doing parts work somatically, intuitively, right? I was, I was witnessing these parts singing themselves to me. Um, which is so psychedelic in and of itself, yeah. that witness of a part singing to you. So I see art, for me, music as this kind of conduit uh, to bring forth a part of yourself that you're unable to even see or feel, but it shows itself to you, sometimes in a nonverbal way. Um, and melody is nonverbal. So it's like a different kind of language the body knows how to speak. Right. I love the way you put that too. And it's like, I love the the idea of the muse, you know, the soul mm -hmm. and the muse, and like this obsession, like this, you're, you're almost like transported into this alternate energy source or, or source of information or whatever, however you want to call it. And it is like an alternate state of consciousness, you know, mm -hmm. and it kind of like, it calls to you. I like that too, because I think I, I really love the notion that we are built to heal and that healing is a, is a natural thing. You know, it's not something that's like, relegated to doctors or institutions that like to tell you how to do it but if we're if we're truly listening that it's it's available for us and I'm I'm curious if that process felt it felt like you know I I, I think a lot in terms of the soul I guess and I'm, I'm curious if when you were sort of initiated into this process with music and art did it feel like that part like called to you do you feel like it like grabbed you was mm -hmm. it I'm curious if that the energy or that consciousness, what your relationship to it is. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It, it it was like a loss of self. You know, it, it still is. It, it, you know, when I think of it calling to me, it is calling to me. And then the question is, well, who's me? You know, where's me? Right. And you know when it happens, and it's it's like it's like the most beautiful non-consensual experience it's like a possession <laughs> <laughs> like, you know it's like a yeah. possession like every pore every part of my body is a sponge mm. and a door 
and a, a rod for lightning to move through and it just kind of comes through without being asked or invited and i think if i didn't have music it could have easily been what we would call psychosis like all this electricity and muse and other creatures and realms moving through me and not knowing how to relate to them but yeah. music gave me a permission to actually play with them and not see myself as having like a schizophrenic episode or something that again we would pathologize as a problem so it really feels like a possession in a really beautiful way when it yeah. happens I love that. Was so funny. Like not conceptual <laughs> possession. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's, yes. It is, and it's so. I love that. I. I mean, the work that I do. A lot of folks, or sometimes folks, come to me. They've done a very intense psychedelic, maybe without the right preparation. There is this like borderline psychosis type mm -hmm. experience that's happening, and. Um, Stan Groff wrote a lot about that in his book, Spiritual Emergency. And I, I think you just, you painted it so perfectly. It's like, if I didn't have the capacity to hold this, if there wasn't an ability to swim in this experience, in this sensation, I, I may have, you know, contracted in some way towards like, oh no, like, is there something wrong? You know, so I guess I'm, I'm curious in terms of like non-pathology and maybe your own capacity, like, what allowed you or what allows you to feel like, you know, Alan Watts said the difference between the water or what is it? The, the waters that the psychotic drowns in are the same waters that the mystic swims in. Ooh, I never heard that. I love that. So good. Right. And I'm curious mm. what your relationship is with that water and what give what gives you permission to, to swim, you know, or the capacity to swim. It's a beautiful question. You know, there's a couple of things that come to mind. Um, you know, when I, th when I think of the ancestors, I think about how I think of, okay, so let's think of like modern colonization. And I just mean the last 400 years, there's been so many different kinds of it all, right. all over our human history, but the last 400, 500 years, I think of that, that, um, that intention to divide people from their relationships to land and other realms and each other and foods and like songs and such that, that originated in that land space. And what I find so tricky or sneaky about the ancestors is when they come through, do we have an indigenous mind, right? Or do we have a colonized mind with how we relate to them? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I was truly born with an indigenous mind. I don't know why I have no clue. But I was. And so I always saw, you know, the world around me through this very um, ancient lens. You know, when I saw a road, I was always very clear that it cut through the body of a mountain. I didn't see it as like a road. I saw it as this thing that was cutting through. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying that because I think there's always been a draw to the wild, you know, to the untamed, to the unregulated, to the mystery, ambiguous, all those things. I guess as I say that part of it is because I was born with an intersex expression. So my body made tons of estrogen, you know, from birth until I was 15. So biochemically, I had similar hormone levels as a woman would have. Mm -hmm. And I developed breasts because of that. And I had wider hips because of that. And I had a completely feminine disposition. Um, so I think there was this natural initiation into just ambiguity and strangeness and not being able to fit in that was my biology and my mind. So then when this energy came in, that was otherworldly, I wasn't afraid of it, because I was already kind of otherworldly. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, your mind was already primed for it. That's right. That's the right. Ambiguity and the, 
man, I could talk to you forever, man. There's so many things I want to talk to you. <laughs> man, so much of, I, I find like a lot of people come to me for like, they want to do integration work and, and there's this colonial attitude that's, mm. I have to do. And then like, how do I like, I gotta, I gotta meditate and I gotta journal. I gotta, I gotta check all the things off the list. Like that's how I integrate where, I feel, and what I've noticed, it's more a deconditioning of that mind and right. helping people connect. I would call it like the mythopoetic imagination or just like the perceptual difference of the indigenous mind that is mm -hmm. in us, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's, I think it's such a relief when I see folks connect to that. It's, it's, it's such a relief nervous system wise. It's a relief spiritually. It's, it's huge. And it's, I'm so glad you said that because oftentimes I feel like there's some explaining that of, of what even th that is, you know? So it's, it's, it's beautiful. And it kind of leads me to my next question around like, you know, non-pathology and, you know, why you chose, you know, you're, you're a trauma therapist and uh, beautiful work. And I'm curious what made you choose to go the non-traditional route? What, what made you choose not going the full like structured route of institutional therapy? Yeah. And right before I answer it, I just have to say a, a, a good friend and a teacher of mine, her name's Amber McZeal. She does this work called decolonizing the psyche and it's amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really everything that you and I were just speaking to. So if you want to dive into that or anyone listening, I'd she's to, yeah. incredible. Amber McZeal. And she calls it decolonizing the psyche for the reason you just said, that it's a psyche, it's a soul attached expression, it doesn't belong to a certain body or a certain group of people. Anybody can express that from this kind of like, you know, soul psyche attachment. Yeah. Um, so I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, you, you want to specifically know why I didn't do the traditional route, like how I found myself where I am? Yeah, I guess what what has informed that choice, you know, because it, it was, to my mm. understanding, it was it, it was a choice. Yeah, it was, you know, as I'm speaking to you, I, I love interviews, because I get more clear about things that just I didn't have any idea about either. And as, <laughs> <laughs> and as we're speaking about this, I'm feeling that clarity, similar to what I said about the ambiguity um, of that, of that indigenous mind. It was really that because my my own body ambiguity, my mental ambiguity, every type of ambiguity you could imagine that just unfurled from my bones naturally. When I was sitting in college and I was studying psychology and I was wanting to become a psychologist, we entered into the DSM manual and I just started noticing that there were these really firm identities placed on people that I saw as having really beautiful spiritual experiences. And even if they weren't spiritual, people just having like the misfit experience, the experience outside of the standard of the norm, and they were being pathologized and told they were mentally ill and they needed medicine to suppress these things. And again, it's it's a colonial reverberation. It's an echo of dominance of something that we don't quite understand or know how to relate to. And there was no conversation. You know, when I spoke to my colleagues and my teachers, there was no interest or curiosity about well, where did this come from? Or how can we express it beautifully? Or could it be something spiritual manifesting in the body that, that wasn't even allowed to be considered? And it felt so short-sighted. And as an artist, truly, it just felt boring. 
it felt it felt boring. The DSM is so boring. Yeah. <laughs> it felt very boring to sit in the room and have someone come in, and my job was to try to check off these boxes to fit them with an identity. Mm. And I just thought that's the last thing. I had done my whole life been trying to get out of identifying. The last thing I want to do is be in the business of identifying. And so I that's when I made the conscious decision. I had been simultaneously to pay for things. I was working at a health food store uh, part-time. And I started reading about herbalism and, and nutrition and practicing it on my own body and getting incredible, you know, mm. healings and uh, transformations. So I started working at this store and helping people that came in and seeing their transformations. And I thought, but what I'm really doing is just teaching people how to relate to the land through food, whether I say that or not. Right. So there's already this like shamanic re-indigenizing happen when they eat different foods and they drink different herbs. And I saw their bodies transforming. And I thought, you know, fuck psychology. I'm just going to teach them this. And I did that for like 12 years. And then I went back to school. I was going to finish my degree and then just, again, become a holistic psychologist. And my supervisor at the time said, Luis, you should just study somatics. If you just did that, you're going to be great. You don't need any of this other schooling. Mm. I'm so thankful to her. And so I did three years of uh, somatic experiencing training mm -hmm. and just like poured myself into it. And that's when I started working with trauma specifically. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Right, right to the core of it. Yeah. It's like, it's like the meta framework we're looking through things mm -hmm. is clearly problematic and there wasn't even a conversation about it or there really isn't a conversation you know institutionally about it it's like it sort of threatens the institution and it's it's curious to me that the colonial reaction nervous system reaction to what i don't understand or ambiguity is threat that's right and it's it's so curious to me because you know, I work with people who have that relationship to, I would say, like, they, they're unconscious to their soul, there's something that's trying to come through. And it's like, immediately, like, almost can take your breath away. And I'm curious, like, where you feel that that reaction maybe comes from, or I know, it's kind of a big question, but maybe where it comes from, or also, like, how do you how do you help people, you know, relax and, and trust? Um, something that is ambiguity ambiguous yeah. yeah yeah i think it's an excellent question because what i've found in myself and with other people if there isn't a some kind of daily or just natural personal practice of your own ambiguity like meeting it with affection and curiosity and listening to it yeah. there's going to be a threat with others ambiguity with someone else's ambiguous nature mm -hmm. so like when you said where does the threat come from it comes from it touches on a part of me that i haven't explored and we think it's about the other but what's more intimate than something in you you haven't explored that starts to be yeah. awakened right yeah so if i see something in you that's you know doesn't make sense to me let's say something new Maybe it's even like what, you know, beyond what I would think male should be, right? And I see this in you. And let's say there's a flutter in my stomach. I, If I'm not an embodied person, if I don't have a, a practice of embodiment, I don't even feel the flutter. It happens, but I'm not aware of it. So from that subconscious flutter of something in me gets activated looking at you because it's taking me to somewhere in myself, I'll reflexively look at you and believe you're the source of it. I won't feel that it's coming from my own body. Mm. So it's it's actually disembodiment for me is the ultimate separation 
of, of, of a human from their experience, because then you don't have direct access to the information coming up, which can completely transform you. Right. If I look at you and I feel that trigger and I go into that, and I let it swallow me whole. Like that's why people do plant medicine. But if I look at you and make you about what's going on in my body, I lose everything in me that's calling for my attention. Yeah. Yeah. Intimacy. It really like it's 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 like a slowing intimacy with my direct experience. That's happening. That's right. Like that's slowing down. You know. I love that. And it's like in the slowing down and the intimacy, there's like space to befriend any sort of mystery or ambiguity. Mm, that's right. And I, it reminds me of like, I, I really, I love the Lakota conception of the great mystery that they, they talk they, they, less of a sky God and more of mystery. I, I love that word because it's like, there's something so grounding about that. We all, there's something mysterious in, in the plants. There's something mysterious about my body. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's, I can relate to mystery, you know, and I love that because it's at the forefront of, of prayer, of, of intention is that like, there, there is this mysterious or ambiguous element to existence as opposed to like, I almost feel like our culture sometimes has an allergy to the unknown and we're desperately looking to re reveal and know all every answer and science has to define it and understand it and hold it. And it's, I feel like sometimes it's um, maybe unconscious, the damage we do to ourselves and the planet in the process, you know? That's exactly right. I, I love that you said the great mystery piece from the Lakota tradition, because that's, that's, I always love that term so much. Yeah, because it's just so humbling. It's like, I'm not even going to try to name it, you know, like, <laughs> exactly. in the naming, I'm not going to name it, right? right. I how how non dominant, right? Right. And there's something, yeah, there's something so like, yeah, lovely and poetic. And I feel like there's this a lot, a lot of uh, Jungians have this idea of like, to, to, to name something is to also, like, main it. That's right. So, like, you don't want to do harm by naming something prematurely, you know, and like, I'm curious, like, how do, and maybe more practically, how do you help people hold, create capacity for ambiguity? Mm. Yeah. What I find is these bodies are, you know, they're electrics, they're electric outlets. There's so much energy goes through them, so much sensation with everything, like the beautiful, the brutal, there's sensation. If we, capacity is all about your body's ability to tolerate sensation. That's all that word comes down to. So if I say something like, I don't have the capacity to speak with you, it means I can't tolerate the sensation that comes up through a conversation. And so that will look like shutting down fight or flight response, uh, drugs, you know, whatever kind of way I'm coping or soothing to give a pause from the sensation. So I see sensation through an animistic lens. I see it as beings. I see the body through an animistic lens. This is not my body. I don't own this body. I happen to be with it. I happen to be through it, but it's not me and it's not mine. So when a sensation comes up, my job isn't to identify with it or even be responsible for the sensation itself. My job is to respond to the sensation, like touch it, breathe into it, 
learn what foods actually help support my adrenals to even feel the electricity as it comes through. There, there's so much around lifestyle and personal somatic kind of self-relation practice that gives me access to those sensations. And then sensations don't scare me anymore. I don't even have to name them. I don't have to call it anger. I don't have to call it sadness. That's a beautiful start. I don't even have to do that. I can just feel the swell of that thing, that creature, relate to it. And when that's my practice, ambiguity doesn't scare me because the sensation that comes from the curiosity or the thrill of what you might be or what might happen is something my body now already has a, a relationship with from even touching to it in myself when it comes up, if hmm. that makes sense. <laughs> Of course, it definitely, <laughs> it definitely makes sense. It's man, I, I just love that you understand this like element of the colonialist psyche and like how, yeah, it's it's there's there's this idea that like the the unconscious will approach you in the same way that you approach it, mm. you know. So if mm -hmm if the ego's attitude towards the unconscious is violence, that there might be, it might, you might experience the unconscious as violent as well. And I, I love that because it's this idea of reciprocity, but also this idea of like vulnerability and softening is, is really, is really the move. And I'm so glad you brought in animism because when there's, some type of violence or, or separation there isn't much of a relationship happening and mm -hmm. and i love the idea of there being a spirit in in all things and if there is then there's the i feel the reality of reciprocity and reciprocal relation is it's less of like a virtuous idea and it's more of a it's just a reality you know it's just something right. that we're living in you know the plants or or my body or all these things, you know, in terms of uh, the planet, you know, I'm, I feel, I mean, I'm trying to think of the, the right question to ask, but sometimes I get the sense that our relationship to that animism is maybe the the solution to this like climate crisis we're in. Mm -hmm. Sort of uh, James Hillman once said that um, we take care of things we love. And if there isn't that relational love present with our planet, then it's, you know, good luck loving it or, or mm -hmm. getting to a place where we care for it in that way. And yeah, I'm, I'm maybe curious if you could speak a little bit to your, yeah, personal relationship with animism, or maybe, maybe some like mm -hmm. uh, transcendent experiences I'm sure you've had. And oh gosh, in that realm. <laughs> where do I begin? Um, I mean, I would, I would even start with my experience even beyond belief my experience with animism is everything belongs so there Ooh. isn't <laughs> just fall right just right there that hit just like yeah man i i just i feel like so many souls and bodies need that need to hear need to feel that you know that that is a is such a powerful statement just that like everything like you belong we, uh, all of you. I mean, all of it. All, and that's what I learned from my my biology growing up, right? I tried to exile parts of myself. 
And it wasn't until I let them all belong that I finally was able to be in this world and enjoy yeah. being in this world, like be loved and love. Yeah. And so when everything belongs, I, you know, you even start to lose, you start to lose the, the sensation that comes with the term crisis even, right? So you hear like climate crisis as a holistic nutritionist, let's say when someone comes in with cancer. I wouldn't, I see that through an animistic lens. Like what's the cancer here to say? What part of you is trying to speak? Mm. You know, this is your body doing something right, not doing something wrong. And, and that's when you're asking for, you know, experiences I've had, even transcendent ones, even psychedelic ones. It's really been through this lens of animism and trauma, or I should say the animistic lens of trauma, because trauma is so overcoupled with something that went wrong. And something that's defective and something that's broken and something that must be healed or fixed. And I respect all those words and I use them, you know, by mistake of habit often. And for me, the reality of it is animistically trauma is a really necessary spirit that gets invoked through your body to save you. And when there isn't a relationship to that spirit, it gets stuck in you and it's constantly asking for attention. And that looks like what we call PTSD and trauma response. Hmm. And so when I've been able to see people from all cultures all around the world actually look at their trauma as a useful, helpful, like beautiful deity, and they revere it and they like worship it and they fall in love with it. <laughs> I mean, what could ever go wrong again? Right. Like, what could ever go wrong again when you have that practice? That's the most transcendent thing I've experienced in my own body so far. It's incredible. Yeah, like how much relation as opposed to exiling. And I love mm -hmm. that you brought in this notion of like, I would say like, you know, I think of the Rumi quote of like, uh, what is it? Pain is where the light pours in, something like mm -hmm. that. Or just that like trauma itself, you know, maybe there's this narrative of like, you know, in a perfect world, like it shouldn't have happened. Like the Freudian sort of like, if we were... We had good, the best parents and all this. That's right. You know? And I always, I think why I chose to go a little bit more of a non-traditional route with healing is that fundamentally did not make any sense to me. Because I'm like, we've never lived in a world without trauma. I don't think. That's right. That's right. You know? So so are we fighting against reality? Where Are we trying? We have to pause right there because that's the piece right there. Hmm. Even when you said that we've never lived in a world without trauma, like so many of us think trauma is societal. Trauma is natural. It is, it is nature. It's not even of, it is nature. It's nature. It's a lightning storm. It's, it's nature. <laughs> <laughs> and when, when I watch lightning explode a tree, I'm like, amazing. But yeah. when I have a flight response, I damn it. It's the same thing. Same so, thing. Same thing. It's no difference. The difference is what I hear you saying is we've lost our relationship to it in modern society. Modern society is not the cause of being traumatized. Losing yeah. the relationship to it is. That's all. Oof. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to say that being a trauma therapist. I'm like, this is, oh, it's, yeah. that's so amazing. I love hearing that. Yeah, because it... Mm. And it's, I feel like when you open, when I've opened my relationship to trauma, I mean, there's so many gifts mm. and, and, and like from the alchemical lens, there's like, you're, you're cooking all sorts of stuff in that, that soup of trauma. Like there's, there's all sorts of, it's a portal, you know, it's an opening, 
you know, I, right. I would say it's quite often the opening to transcendent experience as well is, is that is that traumatic opening and it's and it's something we all share as well you know i don't think anyone comes through life unscathed you know by by that that lightning strike even when you say that I, the proof of that is birth your birth is the initiation into the sensational body it is a traumatic experience it is has to be it lights you up like trauma lights you up mm. when you were just saying about all the the wisdom and the gifts you've learned from your own it, it lights you up to feel things and see things and hear things it, it's literally the same energy as creativity the difference is you know we get trauma and traumatized confused with each other there's nothing wrong with trauma another wrong with traumatized but trauma isn't an issue it's an electricity that moves through you to propel you out of danger that's yeah. it. That's all it is. Traumatized is when it gets stuck, when it doesn't know how to leave, when it doesn't know how to turn off, when it's just mm. sitting in your bones all packaged up and concentrated and starts hurting and inflaming you. That's yeah. traumatized. So we see that and we think trauma must be bad. It's like neither is bad. They're both like healthy responses to the environment you're in. Mm -hmm. But when you have that play, that, that way to create from those stored trauma spaces and to relate and touch into them, it actually becomes pleasurable. It actually becomes fun. And, and it's, it's playful. It's, it's totally, very playful. Totally playful. Yes. And our ancestors knew that. They know how to play with that spirit. I, I remember a documentary on the pygmy people in the Congo. And they were explaining to the person filming them that whenever something horrible happens, they all stop what they're doing and they dance. That's an experience of bodies that know how to be with trauma, right? So it's like we've been doing this for thousands of years. Yeah, <laughs> we just forgot the last couple. Thing. That's right. That's right. Right. This is an old thing, and we're rediscovering it through the somatic language. Right. There's so much of like, yeah. I think like psychotherapy has this like, um, what is it like copyright unhealing almost? You know, it's like mm. oh, oh, y'all are the new kids on the block. That's you it's know, very like, true. We've that's been doing right. this for a very long time. Yeah. Right. Y'all are really new, creative, intellectual new kids have a lot of really cool ideas. Yeah. And the body has been here much longer than these ideas. Much longer. Yeah. So I'm curious in terms of that relational component with trauma. How do you, if someone is maybe experiencing this wanting to exile parts of themselves or, or wanting to get rid of their trauma and even like I recently went to the the MAPS conference and, and Rick Doblin had the MAPS had the zero net trauma by 2070. And I like kind of mm -hmm. eye rolled and I was like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know if that's the the goal here, but um yeah, I'm curious, how do you how do you, how would you help someone or any any words of advice you'd have for someone who who yeah wants to exile part of their experience or wants to get rid of their trauma mm -hmm. or like wants to push, yeah, is struggling to have that relationship, that relational component. I mean, I would first explain to them or validate with them that it makes perfect sense they would do this. Because to, to, when we even say relating to trauma, what we're actually saying is we're touching in and feeling packaged, stored threat. That's huge. So it's not an idea of like, oh, there's a sweet, you know, cuddly creature in me called trauma that I'm exiling. It's it's like a 
really violent, rupturous place. It's a storm. And if I think of it, you know, physiologically, the storm, let's say, goes into my shoulder. And for three, four decades, I walk around with my shoulder just slightly tipped up to my ear. And that's how it lives in me. And then the moment I start relating to it, it makes my heart rate pick up. My blood pressure gets higher. I start getting nauseous. Maybe I feel dizzy. Like an actual storm awakens in my bones. Mm. So it's highly sensational. It's it's beyond virtual reality. It's like plant medicine where it takes over your body and you have to kind of surrender to it or you have a horrible trip. It's the same thing with somatics. If we can't open into like unfold and expand into that storm as it's arising, it gets packaged up again. So the Mm -hmm. exile comes from simply, I don't know what to do with it. You know, it's a really innocent exile. It's beyond even self-judgment. It's just fear. Yeah. When people learn that 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 storm is actually a good thing, when we start seeing how its wild nature is healthy and it belongs and it's here to speak, then we have, we, we lose the fear response to the actual trauma opening in the body. Prior to that, what I see with people and myself is it starts to open, whether you get triggered, see a movie, go to therapy, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. that storm starts to unfurl and a part of the body constricts against it. There's an inner fight happening because it's afraid of it. It thinks it's going to die because it's the residue of threat, something that has already happened. So really what, what I'm teaching people is how to sensationally feel the present and then the body becomes an anchor. And that anchor is so firm of being right here that the storm can just unfurl and do its thing and you know you're not going to die. But it's a practice to get there because prior to that, there's no cultural, personal practices around that. Mm -hmm. It's just numbing it, right? Right. And culturally, the body, I feel like it's very encouraged that the body is, I mean, whether this is like directly, I feel like most of the time it's indirectly said, but the body is a threat, I think. That's a right. lot of the times to society, to like the status quo, you know, the what is coming through the body is to be shut down, squeezed, mm-hmm. pushed aside, pushed through, you know, yeah. to a degree, like don't be tired, don't be, you know, the list right. goes on and on. So yet yeah, it's radical. I feel like it, it's radical to open up the relationship to sensation in that way. It's super radical, especially because it's non-dual. Because when you're naming these things appropriately, you know, when you're tired and so we drink more caffeine, or like we're feeling sick, so we take medicine. What we're really talking about are the sensations that are inconvenient, like the ones that we don't like. The ones we like, we're like, bring them on. The ones we don't like, we don't want to relate to them. And so that's what's so radical is I can relate to something and enjoy something in me that I don't like that's inconvenient. It's like, yeah and in that, in that merging yeah. it literally transmutes it because you're not exiling anymore i love that you brought in that word non-dual because i feel like so much healing comes from the integration of non-duality so much so and i feel like sometimes the, the a lot of the power of psychedelic experiences i find is folks will have a direct experience with non-duality and they'll go like oh it's now clicking that like my body and psyche are non-dual you know, reality is non-dual. And I I really do feel like ambiguity and mystery is like the container for that. You know, mm. if, if we can hold that, like there's so much like that's pregnant in that space. 
Absolutely. That's why everything belongs is kind of my ongoing prayer. Hmm. Because the moment I try to pretend someone or something doesn't belong, I'm going into an aggressive stance. I'm shutting down against hmm. it. And it, it doesn't mean I don't have boundaries. People think that that means that you just let anyone do anything they want to you. I respond when something doesn't feel good. You know, I say no if I don't want to do something. I say don't touch me there if I don't want to be touched there. Like, right. I'm even more clear, right, because of it being non-dual. So you don't lose your clarity, what feels good and what doesn't, or, or your agency, you actually gain it. Yeah. Um, but that part's important to me, the non-dual piece, yeah, sensationally yeah. to be with that. Yeah, for sure. I, I love bringing in the piece of like, yeah, it doesn't mean like abandon all boundaries. No quite, way. Quite the contrary. It makes them more accessible, easier yes. to access, I would say, clear. I had really bad boundaries, you could say you know, before I started doing this work, because, hmm. because boundaries come from your body, and I didn't have a body, I couldn't feel it. So I, I didn't yeah. know what to express or what I needed. Right. It's almost like your preferences to some degree that aren't your own. Exactly. You know, when you're not connected in that way. That's right. All right, we've got a little bit more time. So I wanted to make time <laughs> to ask you for uh, this might be opening a can of worms, but oh, go for you, it. You, uh, I loved your writing this the the Jesus piece. The, oh yeah i loved i adored that especially you know we're talking about the the body and the sensational sort of transcendence i would i would call it and you're you spoke about this relationship with this spirit of christ and and how sensational it was and how like present and uh ecstatic it was and 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 for me it's like the God, like Dionysus comes to mind, like that Dionysian quality of ecstasy really like mm -hmm. was your relationship with that, which is quite counter to obviously what you're being told in the, in the church, which is like <laughs> a, a kind of a, an enemy of the body in a lot of ways. Like they're, they're very anti-body, I would say in some, some, some sure, assets, yeah. you know? Um, and um, so I was curious, I wanted to share one idea and then a, a question. Um, Jung had this theory that, a lot of Western religion was designed to keep people from religious experience mm. out of fear mm. of what would happen if people were to touch something transcendent. And I'm curious how that resonates and how, and what your direct experience has with what it's been like. Mm. I love that. That is so resonant. Even when you were speaking, about how the body is an enemy or it's not included you know the the i grew up in a church where the body was just sin and you were constantly you know excavating the shame-filled body to the priest so that he would give you these certain amount of prayers you go to the front of the church where everyone's watching you and you do like 20 30 different prayers and then you're you're sin free for a moment <laughs> until the next <laughs> for a day. Moment, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your walk back yeah. you. until yeah. I walk back yeah. <laughs> until I think something I should think. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is it, it positioned this idea that there's something impure about this body, right? There's something just inherently mm -hmm. wrong with it. But when you were saying about, I think I said you said antibody. There was so much focus on the body of Christ, like it was all about His body. It's all about his sacrifice the bread like taking it into your mouth like all about him and i think why i was able to transcend that was because i beautifully dissociated through most of the sermons and just really got ecstatic from looking at him floating on this wall 
Mm. And, you know, the color of the stained glass, the rainbow colors coming in and filtering through and like the smoke from the frankincense. It was like a witch, a witch's brew going down. So for me, I was just attuning to that and I would feel him deeply in my body. And there's that that very simple, you know, philosophy or idea of those pictures, those paintings where he's pointing to his chest. And there's a group of people that think that's to follow him. And there's a group of people that think that's to go inside your own chest. And what I believe from my experience with most religions is exactly what you're saying. It, It attunes you away from your own agency and your own relationship to God to another force that kind of gives you permission. Because freedom is scary. It scares people for people to be that ecstatic and that transcendent can be really frightening. And so religion is a fear response, the way it's been used. Whereas for me, the experience was so spiritual. I felt his presence as a frequency in me. Mm. So I never once thought I had to go to him for salvation. It was in me already. Like it's right here. It was right here. And that that's what he taught me in church. You know, I learned <laughs> that <laughs> looking at Jesus for years and years and years. Just imagine you as a kid being like, well, he told me like, he talked to you. He talked to him. I talked to him. <laughs> yeah, that's, it felt that simple. Not what he said yeah. to me. <laughs> it was that simple. That's right. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for the vulnerability there and, and being able to share that. And it's yeah, it's so funny. how like the just the beauty and the intelligence of every part of us. You know, you're like mm. well, I dissociated into a transcendent experience. It's like it's it's beautiful when you. If, pause don't pathologize follow it listen that's right that's it right. took you into some beautiful space that's right it's amazing all right i'm curious if you have anything that feels alive that you maybe just want to speak out loud or share before we kind of wrap up my gratitude for you because these questions i can feel how they come from such a deep place in your own body and your own experiences and I have these moments with people through my life where you meet someone that really feels like a sibling that just kind of sees the world the way you do and maybe you don't tell everyone you see the way you see the world but then you see that person that sees it like you do and it's just so fun and refreshing and that's yeah. how it feels right now so I just feel really so grateful that that I was able to be here with you and you took me into these beautiful parts of myself and showed me parts of you and it was was so enjoyable so i hope you really enjoyed that conversation as much as i did if you want to find more of otto's conversations and his work you can find his podcast it's called the soul and psyche and we'll have a link to his info in the episode details so that's the end of today's episode Notice where you feel the episode inside of your body. Those sensations, those expressions, that's how your body speaks to you. Sit with it, be with it, and let whatever wants to come up, come up. Because all the wisdom you're looking for is right there in those sensations. If you want to go deeper into these practices or find more information about my work, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. I'll see you next time.
Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics? How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there.